Hello and welcome to Medic in the Middle. Medic in the Middle is a podcast series hosted by myself, paramedic Tom Alderson, working within the West Midlands. Uh, Medic in the Middle is a relatively new podcast series exploring a range of different topics, issues and articles. This first series is going to feature guests from a range of different pre-hospital and in-hospital specialties. Um, Today we are really lucky to be joined by Dr Karamat. Hi Tom. Um, Dr Karamat is a consultant endocrinologist at East Birmingham. Um, So we're going to be talking about all things diabetes today. We're going to be trying to cover diabetic uh, pathophysiology uh, and management, diabetic ketoacidosis, and HHS or hyperosmolar hypoglycemic state uh, amongst hopefully more as well. So welcome Dr. Kay, thank you for coming in. Thank you very much Tom and uh, thanks for the invite. I look forward to sharing some information with you about diabetes. Yeah so if, if, I'll, I'll just kick us off with a quick definition of diabetes just to kind of get, get us going. So um, this is from the CDC um, so diabetes is a clinic is a condition in which the body does not properly process uh, food for use as energy. Most of the food we eat is turned into glucose or sugar for our bodies to use as energy. The pancreas, an organ that lies sort of near the stomach, uh, makes a hormone called insulin to help glucose get into the cells of our bodies. And when you have diabetes, your body either doesn't make enough insulin uh, or can't use its own insulin as well as it should and this causes sugars to build up in your blood. Uh, About 422 million people worldwide have diabetes, uh, it's estimated at the moment. Uh, The majority are living in low-income and middle-income countries. Uh, About 1.6 million deaths uh, were attributed to diabetes each year, it's estimated. Uh, Both the numbers of cases and prevalence of diabetes has been steadily increasing over the past few decades and is currently estimated to be about 4 million people living in the UK at present. Um, This is from the global diabetes community. Um, So it's estimated that's about 1 in every 16 people have diabetes. uh, So estimated to be diagnosed or undiagnosed and that figure comes from 2019. Um, Dr Ali, um, you know, do you want to cover us like the, the, the basics of the anatomy and physiology of this disease and the kind of the, the process of it? So I think the, uh, the simple way to perhaps uh, uh, talk about diabetes would be to look at the two most common forms of diabetes which we, which we come across, which um, for simplicity we would call them as type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Uh-huh. So I think it would be quite simple to just talk about them in the beginning. There are other rarer forms of diabetes as well which we can come across, but the two commonest ones are type 1 and type 2 diabetes. And about 90% of the diabetes which you will come across is uh, going to be mostly type 2 diabetes, and about 10% is what we would call as type 1 diabetes. And in both instances, as you've um, alluded to earlier, pancreas plays a big, big part. Now, pancreas as an organ in the body has two components which are called sort of exocrine and endocrine components. And essentially what we mean by that is that about more than kind of 90% or even up to 98, 99% of the pancreas actually works in food digestion by various enzymes which it releases and that helps with food absorption. But the remaining 1% is actually what um, is involved in uh, this mechanism of diabetes. And there are two main cells 
in the pancreas, which are called the alpha cells and beta cells. And these are located in some structures in the pancreas called islets of Langerhans. Yes, I've heard about that. Um, the way I used to remember this when I did my university studies was that the, the only way I could differentiate between the two and kind of help it memorise for me was that the alpha cells uh, produce the glucagon. So because the glucagon is the only one out of the two with the word with the letter A in it, yes. the alpha, um, that was the kind of way I remembered that. And then the, beef, the, the beta cells in the islets of Langerhand yeah. were yeah. The, was the insulin. Absolutely. So that's the, um, the alpha and beta cells are in the islets of Langerhans is probably the, the basic point in terms of from where the diabetes kind of starts. And if you look at type 1 diabetes, the simplest way to understand that is that the body is not producing enough insulin okay. um, and that's from the beta cells obviously so when you're not producing enough insulin there's a deficiency of insulin in the body which leads to diabetes because glucose is not metabolized properly and you need to replace that so from how type 1 diabetes is um, happens is quite clearly that there is deficiency you replace that and it is managed that way so it sounds quite simple mm -hmm. but obviously again when we use that tools and we can we'll, we can discuss them a little bit further up in the podcast about how um, different tools are used in managing diabetes and we can look at those areas. On the other hand, when you're looking at type 2 diabetes, the insulin amount which is being produced from the, um, the pancreas might actually be all right. Okay. But there is a, an issue in terms of how that insulin is metabolized peripherally. And once diabetes progresses to a certain level, the amount of insulin being produced may not be enough. But to put it simply, type 1 diabetes, you could simply understand it as being an insulin deficient state. And type 2 diabetes, you could simply understand it by being an insulin resistant state. Okay, right. Um, and that's really precisely why with type 2 diabetes, you hear a lot more um, talk on lifestyle, for example, ethnicity, all these aspects, uh, genetics, all these aspects being related a lot more with type 2 diabetes because those are the issues which will then contribute to insulin resistance and how insulin is metabolized while with type 1 diabetes it is a pure and simple deficiency of insulin not being enough from the beta cells of the pancreas now why that happens um, in type 1 diabetes it is usually considered an autoimmune condition and to put it simply it means body's own defense mechanism starts attacking the beta cells okay yeah and when enough of the beta cells are destroyed you start manifesting the clinical features. So you may not manifest the features straight away, but once enough beta cells are destroyed that the body is not producing enough insulin, you start noticing the signs and symptoms of type 1 diabetes. Okay. On the other hand, with type 2, that depends a little bit more on how your body is working. And again, at a certain level comes where the body is not metabolizing um, the glucose levels properly. And at that level, it will start manifesting. But type 2 may not have symptoms for a good while until it's picked up with type 1 the likelihood is that the symptoms will happen quite rapidly mm -hmm. and people would recognize the symptoms much more qu quickly so it's a little bit less likely that people with type 1 diabetes remain undiagnosed but those with type 2 can remain undiagnosed because they may not have any clinical features or any symptoms and signs of diabetes per se until glucose levels are really really high yeah and type 1 tends to develop a lot earlier on in life as well doesn't it and type 2 maybe we can see develop later on as people get either more elderly or their lifestyle factors like you said um, have an impact absolutely so generally speaking that's a very correct way of describing it the younger population the younger age group where you would see type 1 presenting 
type two mostly with um, the uh, with sort of uh, um, older age group and stuff. But I think at the same time, what I would say is that we still need to be mindful because, for example, in some of the areas around our location in the West Midlands, even in peds groups or or kids, almost up to ten percent of the diabetes we are seeing in kids is actually type two, which is a really scary mm. um, figure. But that is again related to. Um, BMI, lifestyle, ethnicity, deprivation index, and all these aspects which are also contributing to the incidence of diabetes. Yeah. If you look at uh, similarly, at an older age group, we are seeing people in their 50s, for example, being diagnosed with type 1 as well, which is unusual, but it can happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we talked a little bit about the two things, uh, insulin and glucagon. Um, as we said, they were kind of like made in the pancreas. Um, so Maybe we'll just talk about a little bit about the roles of each um, because they're both really, really integral, aren't they, to this disease um, process. So do you want to maybe talk us through the role of insulin in the body? So insulin is essentially going to work um, in a way that it will help the uh, metaboli- metabolization of glucose in a, in a body. And insulin works um, at levels of both within the um, circulation. It also works at the level of muscles and other tissues, for example, and being able to utilize glucose levels properly. A glucagon is a counter-regulatory hormone to that. So glucagon is like a stress hormone or a counter-regulatory hormone, which is essentially the antidote in a way to insulin. So whatever insulin does, mm-hmm. like it causes glucose levels to drop or hypoglycemia, glucagon will do the opposite. It will cause the glucose levels to rise yeah. or cause hyperglycemia. So the two would be kind of acting against each other in in a way. So if you had, in theory, a simple way of giving somebody glucagon, for example, you might actually be able to treat the deficiency of insulin. But there isn't, because glucagon is so unstable, yeah. it is not something which can quite easily be be, um, be replaced. No, no, um, no, no. But the, the, the way the two work is essentially in opposite direction to each other. And insulin will work at the levels of... Imp- causing glucose levels to drop in the mm. circulation. Yeah. Glucagon will work on the opposite levels to rise the glucose levels. And glucagon levels would usually rise for any fear or fight or flight reaction. Yeah. Um, and as a response to that kind of stress, res- uh, as a stress response to that kind of insult. I, I was always taught, um, you know, uh, and I'll let you be the, the, the judge of the, whether this is sort of the, on the, on the money or not. Um, so the insulin I was always kind of taught was the, the key that unlocks the, the cells so it allows the, the, the sort of the free-flowing energy if you like um, from the bloodstream to get into the cells and that's where we see the drop in the blood sugars because the blood sugars that we measure um, in, in well in, in our context in the pre-hospital environment we measure the, the BM it's sometimes referred to as um, that will measure the amount of sort of glucose yeah. if you like uh, minimals in the bloodstream won't it so we have a lot of insulin um, that's it's going to drop the level of sort of sugars in the bloodstream because that that sugar then enters the cells. Is absolutely. that kind of yeah, absolutely. So I think that's exactly what what insulin will do: drive it inside the cells, and it does the same thing. When we talk um, about DKA, for example, as we go along, you will see it does the same thing to potassium as well. So again, that's why it's important that we keep an eye on some of the other electrolytes as well when we are giving people insulin because. Again, extra insulin can drive potassium inside the cells as well. Uh-huh. So same same way it drives glucose into the cells, it can also do that to the potassium. And while the glucagon will do the opposite, essentially and essentially it will make the glucose levels rise. And same similar way they lack in the, at the level of the liver as well because there is, glucose is stored as glycogen. Uh-huh. And then with regards to glucagon, what it does is it actually 
acts on the liver so that glycogen is then converted into glucose and that's part of the mechanism how glucose levels rise when you give somebody glucagon because actually glycogen which is one of the other energy stores is in the liver is converted into glucose oh, okay um, um, on the other hand insulin will actually make glucose um, convert into glycogen so that's kind of the other mechanism in which the two are opposite to each other so insulin essentially causes what we call glycogenesis which means it making glycogen uh-huh. while glucagon would cause glycogenolysis which means it will act on glycogen to be converted and uh, lysed essentially or broken down into glucose okay, okay. and another um, term i think might be helpful as well um, just for our listeners as well is glucogenolysis as well um, so there's a lot of big words floating around here but glucogenolysis um, that is the breakdown of um, so t- you'll have to explain it to me yeah, it's, so like, it's, it's on the tip of my so tongue glycogenolysis is the term which essentially means glycogen is broken down yeah. and it is broken down into glucose and that's essentially one of the things which will be done by glycogen, uh, glucagon hormone sorry. Mm-hmm. so glucagon will act and convert glycogen into glucose and that process is called glycogenolysis and the other process as I said earlier it was gluconeogenesis but the, essentially the simple thing to understand would be to look at the two hormones as an entity to each other insulin and glucagon with insulin working in terms of reducing the glucose levels in the circulation or causing hypoglycemia mm-hmm. and glucagon working on rising the glucose levels in the circulation or causing hyperglycemia brilliant um, shall we then I think it'd be quite appropriate to talk about sort of in more detail uh, hypoglycemia. We can talk about hyperglycemia afterwards, um, potentially. But so if we just talk a little bit about hypoglycemia, then you, you mentioned just um, so how the insulin uh, reduces and the sort of the, the, the sugar levels in the bloodstream because it enables all that sugar to yeah. get into yeah. the cells. So, you know, uh, just uh, an example uh, from maybe sort of the colleagues in my pre-hospital environment it can be very very dangerous can't it when a patient has you know, been out to previously takes an overdose yeah. of insulin yeah. um, as a form of self-harm yeah. or um, suicide attempts yeah. um, and they can have very very severe hypoglycemic episodes because their blood sugars um, like the, the circulating blood Absolutely. it just drops so low doesn't it to the point where it becomes very very dangerous and the patient gets very sick so I think the simple way to look at um, hypoglycemia firstly would be to look at glucose levels and what we regard as normal glucose levels and what we re- regard as low. So normal glucose levels would be regarded as anything above four, mm-hmm. essentially. And I would regard most majority of the time anywhere between four and 10 millimoles per liter as kind of reasonable glucose levels. Yep. Um, obviously, there are different areas where you would have different targets. So pregnancy, for example, if somebody is diabetic in pregnancy, we would expect them to be adhering to much stricter targets but for simple purposes those are the ranges so hypoglycemia would be defined essentially when the glucose levels are below four um, and if you look at a term which is kind of used technically to define hypoglycemia which is called a Whipple's triad that means glucose levels are low along with symptoms and when you replace somebody with glucose the symptoms settle down What's that triad called again? Vipples triad. Vipples. Vipples. Yeah. Okay. I haven't heard of that. That's actually really cool. So that's one of the kind of terms used for how you define hypoglycemia, Mm -hmm. essentially. And if you look at it in terms of the symptoms of low glucose levels, they are kind of what you would regard as mostly autonomic nervous system kind of. So people might get very sweaty. They might get flustered. You might see them 
being very confused. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the kind of patients that the in, in the pre-hospital environment exactly. that we they, tend to come across to fairly regularly. They might yeah. display some of these features. They might, you might see somebody just suddenly being aggressive. You're trying to treat their glucose level. They're like, oh, no, I've got, I haven't got a problem with myself. I'm fine. Yeah, yeah. So those are the sort of things which you may have to kind of counter in a pre-hospital environment when you are um, with these with these patients. So the first thing I would always say in that setting is check actually what the level is of the glucose. And if the glucose level is very mildly low, so it's just under four, for example, sort of between three and four, and they've got these mild symptoms or one of these mild symptoms, you can replace that glucose level quite easily and quite simply. And there are different things you can use. So classic ones are, for example, dextrose tablets or glucotabs or glucose tablets. Yeah, we carry um, in, in our sort of BLS packs, we carry the 40% uh, glucose gel, yep. which is very yep. similar to the, sort of the, the, the stuff exactly. that a lot of patients that you probably see yeah. um, have, isn't it? So it's just a 10 grams of glucose Absolutely. in a 25 gram so tube. So 10 to 20 grams of glucose, if you can administer that, I think that's usually in this kind of mild one, mm-hmm. enough to actually make the glucose levels come up. Now, what often we get wrong is that we don't always fa- follow it up with something. Because what happens if, if for example, somebody is on insulin mm-hmm. and they've had a hypoglycemia, you might be able to bring it up quickly, but actually insulin would probably still be in their system. So it will come down again very quickly because you've given something which is rapid acting, but there isn't anything more longer acting in the sense to actually counter the actions of insulin. So what I would always advise is that you've given active treatment which is working quickly but we should always try and follow it up with something which is a bit more longer acting so examples of those could be things like digestive biscuits yes complex carbohydrates yeah yeah so something like that to follow up would be really really important foods with low glycemic index stuff like that which will actually make the glucose levels maintain at a higher level Mm -hmm. so if somebody is conscious and their glucose levels are between three and four or even at the level of slightly under three this might be enough yeah. It gets more tricky if the glucose levels are lower than that, or mm-hmm. if somebody is not um, conscious or you're struggling access-wise as well. You can't straight away get intravenous access or things like that. Yeah, it can, it can be difficult. Can't, and I think and that's that's, in that case, you could use glucagon, which I'm sure you all carry yes. as well. Yes, so the um, our, our, our basic drug that acts very quickly um, is just an IM yes. um, injection of glucagon, so that's one milligram. Um, and but that's just a single dose for us because it tends to be once every 24 hours. Yes. Um, so that essentially is just the hormone that stimulates the glycogenolysis in the liver, um, which converts the glycogen into glucose. Um, so it also, um, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it does have inotropic and chronotropic effects um, on the sort of cardiac yep. uh, tissue. So and it also is known to relax the smooth muscle of the GI tract as well. Um, it does, however, have a limited effect on sort of adrenal insufficiency yes. and uh, alcohol-induced hypoglycemia. So I think that's a really important point. I was going to touch that point next because what you have to remember is how it's working. So it's working, as you said yourself, by glycogenolysis or converting the liver glycogen mm-hmm. into glucose. So if somebody's got liver damage, and you gave the example of, for example, in the setting of alcohol, induced liver damage, for example, it's not going to work because actually you are dependent on a good liver function for it to be able to convert glycogen to glucose. So you have to be mindful of where you're using glucagon. 
The other scenario where it doesn't seem to work very well is in sulfonylurea-induced hyperglycemia. Sulfonylureas are one of the drugs which are used for treating type 2 diabetes. Okay. And if you come across and you're called to see somebody who's... Uh, What's this medication called? Uh, glyclozide, for oh, example, glyclozide. is the commonest okay, one. Yeah, yeah. Glyclozide is, is one of the commonest ones. The whole group is called sulfonylureas. Okay. But glyclozide is probably the commonest one you will see people on. Okay, okay. And so if you look at the medication list and you see that somebody's on glyclozide and they've got a hypo, then I would advise you to not use glucagon and use other treatments for treating that hypoglycemia. Yeah, brilliant. Or yeah. in liver damage, again, you, I would advise you not to use that. There was also um, a question um, from one of my colleagues that they've asked me to kind of bring up today as well. Um, and I don't know the answer to this. So I said, obviously, I'd, I'd pick your brains for it. So if glucagon is used... Um, in one of our patients for a hypo and it diminishes the glycogen stores that they have in the liver how well I know it's a, how long is a piece of string but kind of how much food or what kind of um, what kind of level of glucose intake are they going to have to have or, or what, what period of time would it take for that patient to then regain their stores because obviously if we're giving glucagon and, and it corrects their hypo and then we leave them at home is there risk of a, a secondary hypo so I think as long as they are following the principles which we talked about earlier in terms of having the complex carbohydrates, in terms of following up with proper food, and it is not in the setting that they've done an overdose, for example, or taken massive amounts of insulin, I think they should replenish the glycogen stores in enough time to actually be able to manage it at home themselves. Okay. The situation where it gets a bit more tricky is if somebody has done an overdose, for example, because in that case, it is going to be quite difficult for the glycogen stores to be replete that quickly and in that case you might have to actually um, bring them into hospital for a proper treatment of that um, insulin overdose and they might need to be on a maintenance drip for example of dextrose for a good 24-48 hours to get proper recovery from that. Okay that's really that's really really helpful to know. Um, the other um, treatment that we have uh, pre-hospitally is um, as I think we mentioned I IV uh, glucose or 10% um, so we give this in 10 gram intervals um, and our jail calc guidelines that we follow in the ambulance service advises a maximum dose of 30 grams. Um, so, you know, the, the idea of the pharmacology behind this would, is that it rapidly diffuses into the tissues sort of directly through the bloodstream for an IV access. Um, and it also promotes the uh, deposition of glycogen, uh, glycogen sorry, and prevents, uh, can prevent ketosis. Um, you know, there's certain literatures that recommend using that line of treatment if possible over glycogen so we don't sort of deplete the stores yeah, yeah absolutely and I, I think if you look at it for example in in hospital obviously a lot more people are going to likely have access there mm -hmm. so we used to we tend to rely a lot more on on dextrose in hospital one of the things which i think has evolved from even the time when i started first working in this field was which dextrose we use so um, at one point it was 50% dextrose that used to be used but it was so corrosive to the veins that you could hardly use that vein again for something so we stopped mo using that um, and 5% dextrose obviously is another one which is available but it has nowhere near enough to properly treat a hypoglycemia mm -hmm. and that's the reason and the rationale why we've moved towards 10% um, dextrose and what we do is as you uh, illustrated already the amounts you've used um, but if you need to then follow it with something, then you would carry on with a maintenance infusion of 10% dextrose, perhaps over a period of four or six hours to start with, if they still need to maintain their glucose levels beyond that time. Yeah, brilliant. Um, there is another question I have for you as well, whilst we're here. So um, 
normal sugars for children or particularly sort of younger children mm. um you know um i know we're, we're kind of maybe talking about slightly more of a, a, a maybe more of a neonatal sort yeah. of question yeah. but uh, if we have like a newborn for example yeah. um, a newborn baby um we're advised that you know um blood sugars is is an unlikely cause um of of of, of concern in these patients that have just been born what is the kind of like the normal sugar levels for a neonate um or what you know when would be of concern and why is it that um some neonates like you know would have a deficiency in sugars so normally we would regard anything above 2.6 millimoles per liter in neonates as being a, a a normal blood glucose levels okay um and anything sort of between let's say 1.1 to 2.5 or somewhere around that range where you perhaps need to replace it with some carbohydrates and then below that they may need to end up going to neonatal intensive care unit for proper management okay now what we see we come across this a lot more commonly so i do some specialist antenatal diabetes clinics for example so women with diabetes in pregnancy they ca- their children can be at risk of having a low blood glucose when they are born and the the principle behind it is that you've got um, essentially the placenta which is connecting the mother and the baby and as the baby is born and that connection goes away the baby had been dependent on some of the um, nutrients in a way which were coming from the placenta and if the insulin for example or whatever treatment was being given from to the mother has crossed mm. the barrier but there is not enough nutrition in the system then when that connection goes the baby's blood glucose levels can drop and it depends t- to some extent on how the diabetes is controlled so if the women's diabetes is quite reasonably controlled we don't normally see this as being a problem on the other hand if their blood glucose levels are not very well controlled then we can see neonate have that problem as they are born um so that's kind of the simple simple principle of that um but apart from that i think you would not normally see it very commonly that you would come across a neonate with low sort of levels of glucose levels but there could be for example a rare kinds of endocrine conditions sometimes which can cause low glucose levels so there is endocrine conditions for example where the adrenal glands may not be working very well which again produce hormones which are counter regulatory to insulin mm-hmm. and if they are not working very well then you might come across a young child who's uh, um starts having hypoglycemia or low glucose levels. Okay, okay. Um and so sort of just before we kind of move on from hypoglycemia, um just maybe we briefly talk talk about hypoglycemia in sort of more maybe just more healthy people. Um so factors that can affect blood sugars sort of externally. Um sort of during cold weather or exercise the body has uh, an increased metabolic rate um and a low carbohydrate intake. Will this result in some kind of imbalance if we were doing quite hardcore exercise, for example, in colder weather conditions and there's a lot of stress on the body? Will it have any influence over it in a, in a kind of otherwise healthy non-diabetic person? So normally in this setting, exercise and things like that, you should not see it. But yeah. you do see an entity which is called reactive hypoglycemia sometimes in, in people. Um, and I'll, I'll always use this analogy as a simple example. So... we use for example a test called glucose tolerance test to diagnose diabetes where we give people a load of glucose and then we measure what happens to their glucose levels 2 hours after we've given the load now in some people when you do the same test glucose tolerance test what you end up seeing in 2 hours is actually that they have a hypo or they have a glucose level fall down and that is because when you 
introduce such high amounts of carbs to uh, a person, sometimes what can happen is the body can actually produce an extra release or a sludge of insulin in a way, mm. which works in a sense to actually drop the glucose levels a lot more than it should. And this is called reactive. It can be called, it's considered more of a physiological entity or a reactive hypoglycemia. And the major management of this is actually more about how you replace it um, by adjusting the, the food and adjusting the diet of the patient. Um, that is the main thing that works in these settings. There is not really a lot else yeah. that needs to be done. But there are very rare conditions as well, where, for example, there are insulin-producing tumors um, in some in cases which can cause low glucose levels or hypoglycemia as well. Wow. And we do sometimes um, get referrals for these people in our endocrine clinics and our services to differentiate between that and this kind of physiological or reactive hypoglycemia entity. Yeah, and yeah, we yeah. can do some fancy tests where we get people into hospital for 72 hours and actually get them to fast and keep measuring their glucose levels and see what happens. Yeah, well, that's that's fascinating, isn't it? How like an, onc an, onc an oncology kind of insult can cause yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Th that crossover. Yeah, or um, liver damage as well. Similarly, so if somebody's got really bad liver damage when people get advanced malignancy, which causes spread to the liver, same scenario, you can actually see low glucose levels or hypoglycemia there as well, which can be quite difficult to manage. Fascinating. Um, I think we should move on to hyperglycemia, which is the counterpart to hypoglycemia. So in hyperglycemia, um, so the insulin secretion from the beta cells in the pancreas that we mentioned earlier um, normally reduces glucose output by the liver and increases glucose uptake by the skeletal muscles and adipose tissues. Correct me if I'm wrong on any of yeah, this, no, by no, the way. Um, so once the beta cell dysfunction in the pancreas and and or insulin resistance in the liver, um, the skeletal muscle and adipose tissues occur, hypoglycemia develops, um, leading to an excessive amount of glucose circulating in the blood. Um, so there's kind of different causes isn't there, for hyperglycemia in, in, well, whether it be healthy patients or yeah. diabetic patients. So in a healthy patient, um, well, I suppose, or, or a diabetic patient, really, there's kind of like, there could be stress, um, infection, um, we did mention earlier like the fight or flight response so as, as a physiological stress response um, you get a release of uh, ACTH or adrenocorticotrophic hormone from the pituitary gland in the brain sorry uh, listeners this bit might be a little bit heavy <laughs> from me um, so it leads to a release of cortisol uh, which is a glucocorticoid um, an example of, of this you know from a, an ambulance point of view would be hydrocortisone um, that kind of ball part um, so you get that release of cortisol from the adrenal glands in a stress response uh, and it's designed to sort of increase the energy available in the short term um, cortisol is actually uh, sort of acutely impairs insulin is that is that correct yes so cortisol again is like glucagon a counter regulatory hormone to insulin yeah so again we should consider cortisol adrenaline these as kind of counter regulatory like glucagon to um insulin okay okay um, and uh, you know, do you want to talk us through some of the other causes of hyperglycemia then? So I think the the in terms of how you define hyperglycemia, you might kind of look at it as somebody who's you come across to see in um, as an a, a, as an ambulance crew in the setting of someone who's known to have diabetes or somebody who's not known to have diabetes, because there can be a difference between them. Yeah. You might come across somebody, for example, in which this is the first time they're being diagnosed as diabetes as you've gone to see them. 
and that person might need to be assessed properly in a in a in a clinic or in a hospital settings mm-hmm. to get them on the right treatment on the other hand you may come across somebody who's known to have diabetes and when you've gone to see them they've got a high glucose level but that can be secondary so classic one these days for example is somebody who's got covid so they may have diabetes in the background but because they've had covid um and that's obviously an infection and uh, an immune response to covid means that their glucose levels have risen quite a lot yeah yeah similarly you may come across somebody who's having chest pain um and actually what you've come across to see them for might be the chest pain and that they're having a cardiac event but their glucose levels are very high because as a stress response to the um chest pain the cortisol levels and the adrenaline responses let the glucose levels to be high yeah somebody might be having a stroke and the glucose levels have risen again as a counterbalance or a counter regulatory hormones um, to to that so a lot of times when you go to see somebody it will actually be quite clear what is caused the glucose levels to rise but yeah. on the same time you will some sometimes come across people where you cannot easily tell why the glucose level has suddenly gone high Yeah, we got, you know, as part of that flight or flight response, you get that surge of uh, epinephrine, don't you, or adrenaline and noradrenaline. Um so these kind of hormones speed up the heart rate, they widen the airways, they cause a rise in blood pressure. Um so like the norepinephrine in this context um will increase the sort of cardiac contractility um and the rate so you get what, you know, positive inotropic so um contractility and chronotropic so speed effects. um you also get an increase in vasoconstrictions of you know high blood pressure um which just helps get that higher supply of oxygen and glucose to the tissues when when the body needs it if it's under stress that's sort of the fight or flight absolutely. response absolutely absolutely so that's kind of the response that we would we would see um when so when you're assessing somebody with high glucose levels it's always good to know a little bit about what sort of that person um has got so for example if it's somebody in the setting of having a background of type 1 diabetes you might need to see whether they are in a diabetic ketoacidotic episode for example i'm not saying that type 2 cannot have dk they can also have dk and i think that's an important point to remember while it is rare to yeah. see people with type 2 get dk i think these days but particularly during the times of covid we are seeing a lot more people with type 2 diabetes presenting with dk alongside covid presentation okay. and being very very sick with that mm. um we can so also maybe talk just well, do, do, yeah. well just just for the benefit of the listeners just talk us through uh, sort of an explanation of, of diabetic ketoacidosis like the just what what is what is dka so diabetic ketoacidosis you can simply look at it as insulin deficient state which becomes so extreme and so severe that the body starts using alternative fuels okay so the body is then struggling to use glucose as a fuel and it starts using other fuels and those one of some of the other fuels for example are ketone bodies and when you start using the ketone bodies um that's when you start getting their metabolites in the system mm-hmm. which yeah. cause the acid balance to get yeah so they're quite, they're quite acidic yeah. uh, properties aren't yeah. they these ketones yeah. yeah so there are three um essentially ketone bodies that we come across which are called acetone acetoacetic acid or beta hydroxybutyric acid um there is a pretty long standing biochemical structure how they are metabolized and things and I'm <laughs> definitely not going to bore the audience yeah. with that that's Maybe another podcast Krebs uh, <laughs> Krebs uh, cycle that will be a separate whole podcast for that but essentially when you have got um, those kind of ketone bodies in the circulation along with high glucose levels um and along with full blown um acidosis yeah that's kind of triad high glucose levels 
ketones and acidosis is what is defined as diabetic ketoacidosis. There again are a little few caveats here and there sometimes, but for all sense and purposes, for DKA you would see these three things together. High glucose, ketones and acidosis, which okay. is essentially in the name. And you know, this is a, a condition that we need to be quite aware of, uh, you know, in the pre-hospital environment, you know, as well, isn't it? Um, as well as sort of hypo, it's really important to be on top of the game with the DKAs. So and these the, and people the can, so this is one of the, I mean, I would say one of the most kind of rewarding conditions to manage as well, because people would generally make full recovery from it. And I think when you're treating this a little bit like an acute pulmonary edema episode, which I'm sure you guys come across, as you give the treatment, you start seeing yeah. people respond to that you start seeing people respond in dka fairly fairly quickly as well yeah, yeah which is which is always very rewarding when you've got a condition like that um i think the one of the bits which is i, I mean it might be useful to know what sort of access you guys have um to ketone measurements or yeah, things like that i mean the answer is not not a lot not really a lot. we don't we, we can't measure ketones in the in the pre-hospital environment as of yet so mm. with dka you know we kind of look out for um, just have a high suspicion, really, yeah. of DKA yeah. in in in, uh, in people with high blood sugar yeah. levels, and you know, really, um, it depends on, you know, as a general rule of thumb, if people are starting to get over twenty, twenty-five, yeah. I start to yeah. get a little bit twitchy yeah. myself, yeah. particularly yeah. children, um, you know, as well. They, they you know, the, it's just it's something I always have at Absolutely. the back of my head. DKA so has to be a suspicion, especially if they got symptoms like, uh, like you said, they appear quite dehydrated. Uh, vomiting, yeah. abdo pain, they might appear confused, you know, increased respiratory rate due to the acidosis that's going on. Um, they might so have a, like And I think there's a term used, cosmol breathing for this as yeah, well. Yeah, cosmol breathing, I think, yeah. To be fair, I think people are much more aware these days, so you don't see that as commonly as certainly in the past we used to. Um, I think a lot of people with type 1 these days should have ketone strips at home as well. Yeah when you're going to see them so they might be able to have might have checked their ketones yeah, for example sometimes already. they have them which so is really useful so that would be that's quite useful for you um otherwise some people still rely on urine tests i think we don't particularly like the urine tests for ketones um as a diabetes specialist and the simple reason for that is it doesn't quantify the amount of ketones uh, they are producing and it also doesn't actually measure all three ketone bodies so there is a little bit of a element of things that you can miss there but if they've yeah. actually done a blood ketone and let's say their blood ketones are above three with a high glucose level of above 20 the chances are they're in diabetic ketoacidosis and they need to be in hospital yeah absolutely on the other hand if they've got ketones which are under 6.6 and they otherwise are quite well it quite well with it and this is a setting where they perhaps is looking more like a post meal glucose level which is risen they might be able to give themselves a little bit of a correction dose of insulin and get their glucose level down themselves. So if I if I run you through our management of pre-hospital yep. sort of DKA, um, and then you can tell me what you guys yep. do in hospital because I have absolutely no idea. Um, so patients with DKA, as, as we said, are going to appear like quite dehydrated. They're going to be quite intravascularly, quite dry um, within their own bodies as well. Um, so in adults, dehydration is really commonly associated with DKA and it requires IV fluid resuscitation. Um, within the sort of GR calc intravascular fluid yep. therapy guidelines, which is what we use uh, pre-hospitally. Um, so it's also worth noting as well that the fluid, this is from GR calc guidelines themselves, so note that the fluid replacement into the vascular compartment can compromise the cardiovascular system, um, particularly where there's pre-existing cardiovascular disease in, or, or, and in the elderly. 
uh, gradual rehydration over hours rather than minutes is indicated. So with children, um, therefore, and young adults with DKA, um, they may present with significant dehydration. So we need the like, GR Calx guidelines are to establish IV or IO access at the scene um, and commence fluids if the patient is shocked. So the patient's shocked give them an initial bolus of 20 mils per kilograms over 15 minutes. Uh, whilst undertaking a rapid urgent transfer to hospital with a pre-alert because they just need to be in hospital yeah. at that point. Uh, further fluids may be required. Um, if they are required, use smaller volumes, but only after discussing with a, a senior clinician. Um, when intravascular fluids are felt to be indicated in a non-shocked patient with DKA, um, an initial 10 mils per kilogram bolus should be given over the first 60 minutes. Um, and it does say here as well, it's, it's not advisable to try and give oral fluids to children with DKA as they have a high risk of aspiration if they're, if they're quite confused and their GCS is compromised. So yeah, I think that's, that's very, very balanced and very sensible. I think what we would do when somebody arrives in hospital, for example, is we would actually look at the state, whether they're in a state of shock or not. If they're in a state of um, shock, hypertensive shock, hypovolemic shock, we would essentially straight away start them on a stat bolus of fluids. And once they are not in a state of shock, then we'll go for our protocol of diabetic ketoacidosis management, which usually is about a liter of fluids over half an hour, then a liter over an hour, yeah. then a liter over two hours, then a liter is over four hours. Is this just fluids, like is this an infusion or is it just... just, just it's maintenance fluids, so it will be essentially a liter of saline in some instances, okay. or what we would always have is saline as well as dextrose prescribed. Yeah. And I'll, I'll explain the rationale why we have dextrose, because you would think somebody is coming in with DKA with and you're giving them dextrose, oh, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Now the reason why we prescribe both fluids is that if the glucose levels are very high, then you can carry on with your normal saline and it will work perfectly and the glucose level will start coming down and down and down. Uh -huh. But when they fall below a certain level, so some hospitals use a cutoff of 15, some use a cutoff of 12, that's, I don't really mind whichever cutoff people use. But at that level, you need to switch over to 10% dextrose. And if you don't do that, what will happen is in the next half an hour or an hour, that patient may have a hypo. Because you've diluted it. Because you've them. diluted it. Yeah. And they're still in a state of acidosis. And the only thing that is going to correct the acidosis is to give them insulin. So if you don't give them dextrose, you can't carry on with insulin. And as a result, you end up with suboptimal management of the DK because you're not giving them the insulin because they're having a hypo, you're having to stop the insulin at that time, treat the hypo and your whole management is compromised. Yeah. So this is a common mistake which a lot of kind of um, people can do when they're first managing DK where they carry on with the normal saline, don't straight away switch over to um, dextrose when they should and that sometimes compromises care. So that's an important message Brilliant. Um, to, to remember. The other thing is that you may come across somebody who is in decay, but they may not mount a very high glucose response or mm -hmm. glycemic response. So again, a classic example would be somebody who is for, uh, um, who's got liver problems. So yeah. they might not mount a very good glycemic response in that setting. Okay, okay. Um, I've got a real quick question, um, totally off the handle before we move on to um, the other form of hyperglycemia, which is HHS. But before we do, um, I just had a little brainwave that yeah. I really wanted to ask whilst we're here, because um, I don't know the answer to this. So, you know, why is it that diabetic patients um, would 
they can be having MIs, can't they? Myocardial infarctions, like, um, and they they can have what sometimes known as a silent MI, where they can sometimes like not have any chest pain. Sometimes when they've when they're actually undergoing like myocardial stress, is there a particular reason why that is? So I think the the issue here is that with diabetes, sometimes you are not always mounting the same response as people without diabetes do. And part of that can be because of the way diabetes affect the nerve endings. Okay. So with neuropathy that can sometimes happen with diabetes, you may not mount a similar response that you would res- uh, mount without the diagnosis of diabetes. Okay, okay. And that can sometimes make it more tricky and you need to have more of a kind of open-ended consideration that you might not miss something else which may not necessarily be presenting with florid signs and symptoms yeah so they might not have that radiating pain yeah exactly okay that's that yeah i just thought i'd ask that before we really quickly move on to hhs um so hyperosmolar hypoglycemic state um so previously uh known as hyperglycemic hyperosmotic non-ketoacidosis coma um which is called honk um, yes, it's previously called honk, um, but I believe, and correct me if I may, that they moved away from this kind of um, definition yeah. because not all people with HHS or hyperosmolar hyperglycemic yeah. state uh, will perf- will sort of present in a coma, and I think it was misleading a lot of exactly a lot of conditions. Exactly, yeah. So I think the simple definition again tells you what you're going to see in this setting. So hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state. So you'll have glucose levels will be high. And the osmolality would be high. And is that just the, the viscosity of exactly. the, the blood? Yeah. Exactly. So you've got a lot more thicker blood and the viscosity of the blood is, is, is high. And if you look at how you differentiate, for example, between DKA and HHS, a lot more commonly you would see HHS in type 2 diabetes. Okay. People tend to be a lot more elderly. Usually you would see a pretty clear manifestation so somebody may come in with a stroke, for example, and HHS is manifested or they might come in with sepsis and HHS is manifested alongside. Um, the fluid deficit in HHS is a lot higher than in DK, but because people are tending to be more elderly with HHS, you have to be a bit more cautious yeah. in how you replace the fluids. Of, of things like heart failure and, exactly. and circulatory exactly. compromise. So yeah. you, your fluid replacement is usually less aggressive than what it is in DK. Mm-hmm. And similarly, in terms of your insulin amounts that you give them, you also are a little bit less cautious than you are in DK. So in DK, you go for weight-based regime where you give them 0.1 milligram per kilogram body weight insulin and you account with that. With HHS, you go half of that, so 0.05 units per kilogram body weight. Okay. And you can actually take a little bit longer sometimes for the whole thing to revert. But it's a safer way of doing it because otherwise you can make trigger the volume sort of changes too rapidly and that can sometimes impact the brain. Yeah, I was going to mention the sort of cerebral edema. It's quite a big caution. I know in our yes. guidelines with yes. fluid resuscitation in these patients. Um, so, I mean, why, why is that? Why so does it cause that? Essentially, if you give somebody fluid, which means that the volume is suddenly changing too rapidly, that can actually trigger the whole balance inside the intracranium and that can actually cause swelling in the in in the brain and okay. actually cause cerebral edema there is another entity which is called central pontine myelinosis which is something which we sometimes see if somebody's fluids are replaced too rapidly so that can happen either when people's sodium levels are replaced yeah. too rapidly or when someone's glucose levels are replaced too rapidly and again that is to do with how you're 
triggering the imbalance between the cells and outside the system and that can cause the same kind of issues as well yeah so and that's the reason why we're a little bit more cautious with particularly with hhs how we um replace the um glu- uh, correct the glucose levels and replace the fluids yeah these guidelines I was talk about the, these are our calc guidelines again um for hhs so as we said characteristics in these patients tends to be type 2 diabetics more so um they may present hypovolemic, uh, marked hyperglycemia, so more than or equal to 30 millimoles, um, without significant, well, no, we can't measure it anyway, but without significant hyperketonia. Yeah, so if yeah. the patient's done their own, which they quite commonly have, if yeah. they're normal, it's highly suspected, they might be dehydrated. Yeah. Um, risk factors, uh, infections, uh, sort of coexisting diseases, poor management of their yeah. of their diabetes or substance misuse but and you know i think the management in in pre-hospital um it's our guidelines are just yeah patients should undergo rapid urgent transfer to definitive yeah. care yeah. Um, they should be encouraged to drink fluids yeah. um if they're able to tolerate this without without nausea because we don't yeah. want them vomiting and becoming more dehydrated and it just says consider administering iv yeah. um sodium chloride in line with the intravascular fluid therapy guidelines but i think it's just having that at the back of your mind yeah. isn't it just be mindful you're not you know we're not going to flood them yeah, with, exactly. with tons so you just need to be cautious with that but i think generally speaking it is the fluid kind of um, balance that they need really and i think once we're on top of it they do start making a recovery what is interesting is some of these people actually may not need um any insulin after diagno- after sort of at discharge so their glucose levels have just risen so rapidly because of whatever insult has happened yeah and as opposed to people with type 1 and having dka where you are almost almost likely to have insulin long term in this in instance they may not need um insulin on discharge for example some of them are discharged on oral agents in some instances they may not need any treatment at all on discharge so it's quite interesting how it kind of evolves over the over the period of time yeah um, yeah brilliant um i mean that's that's all i've got in my notes that you know i really wanted to cover today unless you've got anything else that you wanted to talk about whilst we're here so i think it might be a, a useful sort of uh, time to reflect a little bit about what we are seeing at the moment with covid um, yeah, and, yeah very topical and diabetes yeah. um and also particularly with you working around in the west midlands and in our patch some of the impacts we are seeing in terms of covid diabetes and ethnicity and we are seeing a lot of kind of disproportionate effect on the BME community in in our patch and a lot higher incidence of diabetes as well in this in these communities yeah so what we are seeing is uh, perhaps people coming in with uh, much more sicker um disease and much more severe kind of um glucose responses as well yeah and we are seeing a lot more people with type 2 diabetes present in full blown diabetic ketoacidosis uh-huh. um than we would have seen otherwise um so i think it's it's a reflection of the times and also to kind of keep keep this in the back of your mind if you are asked to assess somebody who's got a background of type 2 diabetes and is tested positive for covid for example that also look at their glucose levels and if somebody can then also look at their ketones and see what they what those things are like and if they need to be treated for those aspects as well as the oxygenation and other aspects of covid yeah yeah that's that's really interesting isn't it because like you know i think just talking anecdotally like i've seen certainly a lot a lot of the patients that have been presenting more unwell and they're they're suspected covid or they're positive covid um 
they have tended to be amongst the diabetic sort of cohorts, yeah. you yeah. know, a, a, a lot of the time. And it's interesting, isn't it? Like, like the interaction does seem to be quite, um, yeah, quite strong. Yeah, absolutely. I think also we see association with um, raised body mass index. So again, that's that's an association we see. The, the other bit to remember is that a lot of people with COVID, if they're in hospital and requiring oxygen, are now treated with steroids. Uh-huh. And steroids are likely to cause glucose levels to rise as well. Yes, that's one of the um, things that exactly. is on our guidelines for yeah. HHS or yeah. hyperglycemic risk is if they are Absolutely. treated with steroids, isn't it? So we would see this, we, we are seeing this much more commonly as well. And I think what you guys could come across in the community, for example, there could be someone who's discharged from hospital. Um, and is on steroids for a few more days, for example, while they're at home and their glucose levels are still a little bit high. So that could be something you guys might come across. And yeah. while we try and to make plans for them before discharge, with the sheer number of people we are seeing in hospitals at the moment, sometimes the pressures have meant that they may not necessarily have a full kind of long-term plan for their diabetes on discharge. Um, so that could be something that you may come across as well in um in the community when you are um, reviewing people, perhaps yeah. post-COVID. Yeah, no, that, that's really interesting to kind of just note, isn't it? It's very, very kind of current at the moment absolutely, as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, you know, thanks so much for, for coming and doing, uh, doing this session with us today, Dr. Ali Karamat. It's been really, really helpful and it's been absolutely brilliant having you to just pick your brains on this topic um, i'm sure that, that, that those who do listen to the show will just be you know really blown away with some of the information that you've given us today it's great thank you very much tom for thank you very much for coming in thank you